So that's pretty fucking bleak. You're still listening. This is our final transmission. Welcome to Final Transmission. I am, as always, Sam Russo, and with me is... Jamie Carruthers. Listen, today we're talking about the movie Wolfen, which I was introduced to, shock and awe, by you, Jamie. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) This is a movie I had not seen. We should just get that on t-shirts at this point. 1981's X-rated Wolfen, clocking in at 1 hour 55. It's slightly longer on the spectrum of uh, movies that we've worked on together. Uh, but an absolutely stellar cast. Yeah, the first amazing. thing that caught my eye about this, the top line cast is just untouchable. Is there anyone that stood out to you in this movie? Um, well, first of all, how and when did you first see it and, and what stood out to you about the cast? So I came to this movie sort of relatively late. I think I was in my mid, uh, early to mid 20s when I first saw it. So it wasn't one mm. that has been like hanging around for me forever. But I was always a huge fan of The Howling. Also 1981, obviously a huge fan of American Wolf in London, also 1981. So I was like, hey, so here's another, I assumed, werewolf movie at the time. Mm-hmm. So I, I I strapped in for it and got something pretty different to what I was expecting. Glad to hear it. I did too. But I fucking love it. Yeah. I picked up on your excitement about it basically from the beginning as soon as you put it forward as one to watch. But uh, leading up to watching it, you know, your message is, have you watched it yet? Have you watched it yet? <laughs> <laughs> I was taking that as a very good sign. And I, I was not in any area disappointed. I kind of broke the golden rule here and actually read, semi-accidentally read the 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 synopsis, like a three-line synopsis of this movie before I watched it. And the synopsis just says, a New York cop investigates a series of brutal deaths that resemble animal attacks. So immediately you're thinking werewolf. The title's Wolfen. There's a on the cover of the version that I watched, this dusty old VHS, there's a full moon in the eye of a wolf. <laughs> so we're, we're led to draw certain conclusions early on. Yeah. As soon as I saw it, it was now but Finney movie, I was excited, but I haven't always been a huge fan of everything Finney's done. And to be honest, some of his accent work kind of threw me a little bit. So I was hoping for some some decent, you know, I guess that what would you call this? Mid career Finney? Yeah. Born mid- born in 36, this is 81, died in 2019. Yeah, it's mid-ish, I would say. Not in quality, obviously. But No, for sure. I mean, he is a little long in the tooth at this point, Yeah, if you'll excuse me. Uh, but we're also <laughs> treated to Gregory Hines, who yeah. I absolutely love. It's an early, get... an, early, uh, an early role for Gregory Hines. Or an early, is this early? Early film role, yeah. So he was like basically an unknown. He was on Broadway like right before this. And so, yeah, this is, I don't know if it's his first film role, but it's certainly early doors. So he's working Broadway, late 70s, jumps on the chance to be in this movie, I would imagine. Yeah. Has an, a, you know, a pretty incredible TV career, everything from highbrow to trash and everything in between. Somewhat of a cult figure, would you say? Yeah, I love Gregory Hines as well. Like, yeah, I, me too. There's something about his face that I just find so soothing. Yeah. I have great, like, such enormous potential for, like, comic foil but never quite, well, sometimes, but not in this movie, doesn't quite lean into it all the way, still maintains quite a bit of serious acting chops, I think, and does a great job with everything he touches. Yeah, well, I, th- I think that's one of the one of the beautiful things about this film is that it skirts comedy oh, God, yeah. so much. And, like, we'll get into it probably, but, like, 
it wants to be a noir film to the point yeah. where it's like almost a spoof of noir films. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, the the interplay between Finney as Dewey Smith, Dewey, yeah, yeah, Dewey Wilson, Dewey Wilson. Sorry, yeah, the interplay between that they're, they're both both their characters is regularly hilarious. Yeah, Finney's accent is a bit ropey here. Sure. But he's, I mean, I give it, I give it a pass. What, what's your, what's your take on it? I think his, his accent's fine. He's basically doing a Bogart impression for the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, like he's playing, he's playing this guy as if he's Bogart, but with Albert Finney's squashed little head. Yeah, and it's, um, I, I think it's so charming. I, I completely agree, and I think it doesn't. For, for me, the accent doesn't ring as I don't know where to pitch this. All I can do is English, but I'm just going to try and do a little bit of American. It feels like that sort of hard-boiled East Coast retaining that sort of, I don't know what it's called. I guess it's like a regional formality to the accent. But So dropping into some some A's and R's, but also still having some hard-edge American vowels. And I think it just works. Like There's a few little slip-ups, but for yeah. the most part, for, for a role of this type in this era famously English actors doing American stuff at this time were just pretty much dog shit and yeah. unforgivably so and this was pretty great I thought a, a huge treat to see Tom Noonan briefly in this movie love love Tom Noonan I watch anything with Tom Noonan in it yeah we also got a little bit of uh, Mr. Strickland James Tolkien famously also from another one of my favourite movies of all time Masters of the Universe another you know downplayed Tolkien role that maybe doesn't get the cred it deserves but I thought for his one scene in this as Baldy, <laughs> he's on screen for about 25 seconds. He's fantastic. Yeah. Then obviously Edward James Olmos. Edward James Olmos, borderline movie stealing in this in this film. Just, yeah, he's, just superb. He's incredible. And um, I've, I feel like there was a lot of talk in the 90s and the early mm. 2000s maybe around women about that scene in Lethal Weapon where you see uh, Mel Gibson's arse. Yeah, and I think that Edward James Olmos's ass shits all over Mel Gibson's ass. If you pardon the expression, I hope you mean literally. <laughs> Is this some uh, some hidden sex tape that I don't know about? <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's gooey, but yeah, no, yeah, I th- good good ass shot. Yeah, loads of great almost nudity. Not almost, but almost. A guy, a guy with a face with that much character, you wouldn't expect such a smooth act. Mm. The faces of this movie uh, are just full of full of stories. I yeah. mean, Albert Finney looks phenomenal. He's got this huge hair. He's craggy, but he's also puffy. Like, he just looks... I don't know, man. He looks like he's some kind of like swollen potato dude for most of this movie. And it's good because it, it comes across like he's tired, like he's yeah. not really sleeping. He's eating junk food. He's he's really leaning into the, you know, slightly self-abusive cop all hours role big time. Edward James almost looks amazing. Gregory Hines' face is, is just constantly animated, constantly doing something interesting on screen. Um, Diane Venora playing Rebecca Neff, a pretty fantastic, I guess we got to call it a supporting role, but... You know, she did a whole bunch of great stuff as a supporting actress, I think, throughout her career. Yeah. I'm talking like she's dead. Is she dead? I don't know. She's not dead. She's not dead. Uh, <laughs> Diane Venora and Edward James almost still with us, still kicking. Was that, a, um, was that a, a, an office quote that you just did then? <laughs> yes, it was. Sorry about that. <laughs> Couldn't help myself. Sorry. 
Both still kicking, both still kicking its ass. Both still kicking Edward James almost his ass as he shits on Mel Gibson's ass. Holy shit. I guess that's why they call it Phantom Power. Sam. Yep. Have you ever jumped in Lake Michigan and swam out as far as you can? No, I haven't, but uh, I know someone who has. Who's that? Deanna from the band Sincere Engineer. Oh, nice. That's uh, that's who I was thinking of also. Fueled by corn dogs and rage just out there. You know, she's one of the most intelligent humans I've ever met. Really? Yeah, she's the best, man. I mean, the whole band is... You know, foot chock full of great humans. We played War on Christmas together last year. Fast friends, good people. Love that shit. Well, that record, Rombithian, is so good. Constant play around the, the Carruthers household. Sincere engineer. Red Scare Industries. The combo. No longer together. We mourn the loss. Yeah. It's uh, it's all hopeless now, isn't it? Yeah, it's game over. It's all downhill from here. Twenty, The 20 year mark, it's all downhill. Yeah. Hi, Deanna. You'll never listen to this, but we love you. Sincere Engineer, man. Great record. Huge fan. Should we start with a, a little a little blow through this movie? Well, you, you, you go. You tell me what you want us to talk about. I'll, t- I'll tell you how I think this movie plays out. <laughs> you might be able to correct me if I'm wrong. But so the, the way I watched this movie to begin with was that I knew I was getting something noir, but I also knew I was obviously watching a horror movie and mm. potentially most probably a werewolf movie. At the time, I was certain I was watching a werewolf movie. So, well, the movie wants you to think it's a werewolf movie until until it punches you in the gut and says, "Yeah, fucking werewolves, what are you talking about, dickhead? What, this are you is, a kid? Yeah. This is real shit. This is eyebrow shit. I mean, it starts with a very confusing but fantastic scene. To begin with, you see a lot of mist and a lot of cloud, and I think werewolves, obviously. I associate the, the two in my mind really closely. But then we're in New York, and I'm thinking I'm getting, you know, Predator 2 vibes, even though this is what, like, several years before Predator 2. Yeah. We're greeted by a very strange scene of uh, a man atop a bridge in a bandana swinging some kind of noise-making rope around. And immediately that kind of, for me, set the tone that the sound in this movie was going to be weird as hell from the very beginning. Lots of crazy stereo effects, lots of really janky kind of grinding, smashing sounds. The score is really percussive. So immediately you're getting like New York skyline, crazy dude on a bridge beyond bizarre soundscapes lots of juxtaposition of natural world and city and then we see buildings collapsing so i I think that opening is pretty ambiguous but really arresting did you have any thoughts on the on the opening when i watched it this time i had to i I went back and watched that that opening scene a couple of times because Mm. i think i remembered it that it was that it was albert finney on top of the bridge like right. feeding the bird with his mouth, but obviously yeah. that isn't what happens. So I don't know why I mentioned it. No, it's somebody else. But yeah. Do you know who it is? No, like one of the Native American guys, I guess. Yeah. Uh, on first viewing, I didn't realize these dudes were supposed to be cast as Native Americans. Uh, and before that becomes a plot point later on. Yeah. I just thought it was like a John Travolta lookalike kind of guy with long hair. But that obviously made a lot more sense later on. Yeah. But the, I guess if I were to summarize the plot, I would say that two very important people in high New York society are murdered brutally in a park early yeah. on in the movie. Is it and is is Vanderveer? Is he Trump? Yeah. 
Is he Trump? <laughs> he's too in, in the like ten seconds he's on screen. He's too likable to be Trump. Well, I think they would have. <laughs> well, I suppose at the time Trump wasn't seen as quite so much of a toxic, parasitic dickhole as he is now. Yeah, he's just a, a real estate guy who's got a lot of money and is in New York high society. I guess there's hundreds of those in New York. Yeah, but this guy seems really significant because later on in the movie the cops are talking about politicians being in their pocket or dead dead presidents and you know sort of high capitalism pulling the strings of government type vibes which which makes me think they're upper tier upper echelon movers and shakers so yeah possibly trump vibes i just i, th- I thought that was weird because obviously the um the climax happens in vanderveer yeah. tower mm-hmm. and i just thought it was like there was a weird little well there's a sort of an offhand little line where he was like he was a, a rich guy and maybe one day would be president. And I, Interesting. I just thought that was that was pretty fun. Well, it would be really surprising to me if Michael Wadley uh, liked Trump. Uh, director Michael Wadley, quite famous environmentalist. I uh, wouldn't go as far as saying necessarily an anti-capitalist filmmaker, but definitely not a person who uh, holds a lot of high regard for the excesses of excessive wealth. No, I wouldn't have thought so. Weird that he only made one film. We'll talk about him a bit more later. (laughs) Yeah, we'll hit him later on for sure. Either way, these two very important, very rich, uh, this couple, are brutally murdered in a park. We'll go back to what goes down a little bit later because some of the the visuals are phenomenal. And then we get, essentially, a hard-boiled New York cop movie for about an hour. We get a lot of investigation we get following leads, we get some great, you know, uh, downtown police station back and forth. We learn more about the the various cops on the case, including Dewey Wilson, Whittington. We get an encounter with Tom Noonan's Ferguson. We see a whole bunch of crazy characters as the the murder is investigated. There are subsequent murders. Uh, Somebody I think who is billed as a vagrant is murdered in the Bronx in a very similar fashion. And things start to point towards a slightly unorthodox outcome, potentially some kind of animal attack. Originally, they're thinking there's no uh, residue from a weapon. The wounds don't correspond with a physical attack by a human. Uh, it's an uncommon way to die in a park in New York. Nobody was shot. Nobody was stabbed. They don't know what's going on. So Diane Venora teams up. Uh, sorry, Rebecca Neff teams up with Dewey Wilson. And they begin investigating political motives behind the killing. Yeah, I guess this is when um, those like political groups, domestic terrorism groups, were really big. Yeah, sort of coming out coming off the back of the seventies, you've got all those all those groups like the Weather Underground and whatnot, who were sort of categorized by this film as like basically kids playing around. Definitely, there's a lot of allusions to you know you'll be radicals until your trust fund runs out, that yeah. kind of thing. Because we're spending a lot, we're spending a lot of time in a in a hard boiled cop world. I love that. I think that works really well. That is a you know brilliantly dismissive viewpoint uh for, for what could potentially be really dangerous to radical terrorist groups so there's some good grind between the fbi yeah. and the nypd which i love and eventually the whole plot rampages forward to the point where we're, we're led to believe that uh, a werewolf is is committing these 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 atrocious murders but it turns out not to be true there is a twist which i i imagine we'll talk about a little bit later on but why don't we go back to the instigating moment of the movie, the first murders. What did you think of this uh, sequence? I think it's great. I, so this is obviously the first time that we're introduced to the wolf and eye view. Mm-hmm. So the first time you sort of see as they see, which is um, sort of a mishmash of different digital effects on top of standard photography. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all sort of looks a bit 
otherworldly and a bit sort of like you're you're supposed to be seeing that they that they 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 see more information somehow. Obviously, there's no more information in the in the image because that's all there is. It's all we can see. Yeah, yeah. but there's 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 something there, and and, and obviously you don't see the wolfen or the creatures or whatever until way way later in the film so we you only see through their eyes and like mm. uh, maybe you hear a couple of growls and see a, someone jumping somewhere a swipe yeah yeah but that's about it so i i love this i think there's um there's a bit of a through line about how you don't die instantly when parts of your body are severed sure. uh, and the, the first time you see that is here with the with the gun in the security guard's hand yeah after it gets swiped off a lot of the stuff that's here that happens in this scene sets up loads of really good comedy in the in like basically the next scene which yeah. I which I really enjoy like obviously the the, the wolf kills everybody who's involved in this scene or the mm-hmm. the wolfen whatever it is and it's gory and it's fun the opening of this film you, you're not expecting to have fun yeah you're expecting some a sort of a grisly 70s like mm-hmm. pretty serious I, I'm, I'm, you could if you were completely devoid of a sense of humor you could probably enjoy this film on that level anyway oh for sure yeah yeah but yeah the, the, this opening scene makes you makes you think that you're going to be watching something that's pretty dour or pretty mm-hmm. pretty brutal and pretty dour you get a really grungy portrayal of new york don't you You get a really no frills mm. uh it, it chooses quite deliberately to focus on not just like the dilapidated and the kind of socially crumbling parts of new york but also, just the stuff that is completely broken, like the landscape is completely trashed for the most part. Yeah, it doesn't overdo it like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle style, but it also doesn't give you that sort of romanticized version like Warriors. It's it's like it looks very real, in my opinion. It does look like they just went to the completely destroyed parts of the Bronx and started rolling. Yeah, I completely agree. And then obviously, following this scene, we're introduced to to Dewey Wilson. Mm-hmm. Um, he was jogging and looking like the guy out of the bear. Yeah. And then we find out that he's retired and he's called back in to try and solve these murders, these grisly high-profile murders. Mm-hmm. And from the second he talks to someone else, they are just absolute back-and-forth zippy dialogue. I fucking love it. It's great. And it it is like a rusty zip in it because it's... It's it's low key, it's slow and steady, but it's so sharp. Yeah. It feels really natural because of that reason. Nobody's hamming it up for the camera. Nobody's, you know, stepping on anyone else's lines. It's really paced. It's really calm. What was really surprising to me about this whole movie is just how slow moving the cop stuff is. It's not like a, you know, I'll only go back to it because you said Lethal Weapon earlier in reference to Mel Gibson's ass, but it's not Lethal Weapon. <laughs> it's not a quick, fast buddy cop movie it's it's so incredibly slow chinatown slow yes it's it's obviously picking up from from the classics in that respect and finney was born for that he's such a good slow actor he's so ponderous and he he's like a cruise ship when he turns around a corner like it takes him forever just to walk around a corner it's great to watch he really holds your your attention i think yeah he's just got the face that's made for these these sorts of roles hmm the two the two roles that I really really love Finn in are, yeah. are this and Scrooge, and it's just oh, like no way <laughs> yeah him as him as Ebenezer Scrooge is just perfect and like yeah, that's pretty cool. Albert Finney can do Bogart, but Bogart couldn't do Ebenezer Scrooge. 
That's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah, I'll take that. And I think part of the charm is he's got a face that you can see thinking. Mm. You know, when he's thinking in this, he's doing it with his face. And that's no mean feat for an actor to show, you know, to show the audience that you're thinking is super hard, right? I mean, you get so many, you, you can ham it up, you can do hand gestures, you can do all kinds of stuff, but he just has to, you know, move like 0.4% of his facial muscles and you know what's going on with the rest of his head. It's great. Really clever, really clever approach to the role. One of my favourite tropes in all films is people eating when they shouldn't be to show how, how <laughs> jaded they are. And they, they just keep it coming in this. Yeah. Every gore scene, every autopsy table, everywhere you go, the guy is munching. Yeah. So obviously he's he's eating his little donuts at the, at the crime yeah. scene when uh, somebody drops Mrs. Van Der Veer's head. That's hilarious. Yeah. That, that's probably our first real stone cold piece of comedy, right? Yeah. Is it? I think it's Whittington turns around and says, careful with her. And then you hear a thump and that's them <laughs> dropping the head as they put her on the gurney. It's so good. But yeah. So obviously he's eating that. He's eating cookies all the way through the autopsy scene. Yeah. And then they're at the donut cart, uh, the hot dog cart, while she's explaining yeah. all of the horrible things that some of these terrorist groups do. Well, he, he takes a huge bite of a hot dog as she says, cock and balls, <laughs> which is superb. Remove the genitalia, the cock and balls. So, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's not it's not a subtle device, but it works. We love him for it. It's particularly gruesome in this because the scene, like normally it's like the coroner and he's eating a sandwich and you meant to... Sure. I think it's meant to show how blasé they are, but also it's meant yeah. to make you feel pretty blasé about it as well. Whereas mm-hmm. in this, it, is the, it wants the opposite. It's like he takes a <laughs> yeah. bite of the cookie and then you get a close-up of the the victim's teeth pulled out. Yeah, It's like it wants you to know that you, you shouldn't be this comfortable with, with death. Yeah, nobody should, yeah. And I, but it it sets us up for a lot of things in his character, and it I think it does it does do the job of of showing us you know this is a guy who's kind of been everywhere and seen everything, but he's also kind of weird. Yeah, you know we're told early on that he's a weird guy, and you know I'm not being funny, but in this era of filmmaking, it's it's kind of hard for me to tell as a modern audience who's weird and who's not because everyone looks kind of weird. Yeah, and everyone's behaving super weird. So that's our first tell that he's yeah. not just super jaded, but also kind of different to everyone else around him yeah that's sort of Sherlock Holmes brilliant but because he's brilliant he's so weird I wrote a note that was basically that this is Philip Marlowe's Hounds of the Baskervilles why not why? I mean that's, that's pretty great <laughs> yeah um, but I think everybody like you say everybody looks weird in this because everyone's a, everyone's an actor no one's a film yeah. star everyone is a, everyone sure. is an actor everyone has a real presence except for maybe Rebecca Neff I think that that character doesn't have an awful lot to do apart from no. spout tech exposition and then get boned mm. by Dewey later on. She's different texturally to Dewey and they stand quite well next to each other in a lot of scenes in that you get to see somebody who's maybe not supposed to be normal in, in the Rebecca Neff character, but somebody who's maybe responding to these things in a slightly more like reasonable way. And that kind of, again, highlights his oddball side. There's moments where he's leaning a bit close to Columbo and I feel like she kind of pulls him back a little bit. Yeah. You know, nothing I I love Columbo. I'm not saying Columbo's bad. I'm just saying it doesn't really work in this context. So w- what we get from Albert Finney early on is is a pretty arresting entrance, some great 
really natural character traits that stand him apart from the crowd. And we learn that he's clearly a really deep thinker. He's obviously had a bit of a history with booze, kind of been through it all, seen it all, which is great. But we get a, a, a massive sense of his depth, I think, early on. Definitely. And that plays out later because no other kind of, I, I don't think not many other kind of people portraying this character could have pulled off what he pulls off later on in the movie without those sort of uncharted depths being hinted at early on. Because, because we're, again, we're not dealing with werewolves. As the movie progresses, we find out through the vehicle of Dewey and his uh, investigative prowess, but also his open mind and his unorthodox ways, that what's happening here, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that we're dealing with some kind of pseudo-cryptid wolfen creature that is essentially protecting its habitat? Yeah, that's Good. that's ultimately it. And it's um, <laughs> okay. like it's it's weird because there's a load of plot holes that you can already just yoink out of that. Why is New York its habitat? Yeah, don't even get me started. <laughs> why why does the film start when it does and not literally hundreds of years earlier when Yeah. They were building New York for the first time. <laughs> but more importantly, who cares? We don't find that out until way, way later. And then in between yeah. that, there's a scene where... So he Dewey arrests uh, Edward, James, Edward James almost as his character, but maybe a third halfway through, because he used to be a radical of some mm-hmm. repute. In a, in a Native American group of yeah. radicals who are, who are protesting lots of government action but also lots of local stuff happening in new york especially with you know development areas huge development areas and gentrification yeah and so dewey kind of doesn't let go that it might be edward james almost and then mm-hmm. follows him one night uh, after he gives him a bit of a spiel about how he can turn into animals mm-hmm. uh, and you think okay maybe he's not a werewolf maybe he's a shapeshifter maybe the film isn't about werewolves maybe it's about shapeshifters and then we watch him get naked, take some drugs, and pretend to be a wolf for a bit. It's yep, f- fucking which I loved. Fucking great. <laughs> it is great. Oh, for a minute, I was worried you didn't like that scene the way you said it. But I thought it was awesome. I flip flop between the um, like what what's going through Edward James Olmos's character's head. There, does he get high and believe that he's shape shifting into a wolf, or does he know that Dewey's there and he's just trying to fuck with him? Like I, I when when I watch it. I can go either way, depending on what mood I'm in. I think it's ambiguous, and I think there's there's definitely like a lot of weight to both those assumptions. Because at first I thought, oh shit, shapeshifter movie. There's this group of Native American bridge builders in New York who are turning into wolves and killing all the land developers and random hobos. Uh, so I got really excited about that. I thought that'd be an amazing direction for the movie to go in. I actually think I prefer where it ends up going because mm. that's almost too silly for what we're what we're set up for. But my my read on it was that he was he was legitimately just super attuned with the idea of shape shifting, and he was he was doing what he said he was doing. He was if you think it, you can be it kind of thing, yeah. and, uh, exploring that fully with some kind of you know psychotropic hallucinogenic substances but also he may be just completely taking the piss out of dewey's character and playing up to some absurd native american stereotype we don't know because we don't know how how aware the filmmakers are Mm. of of how they're portraying native americans in this movie so it's tricky but i like i like both reads and i think both work because the performance you know is really visceral and really full-on so it's almost hard to get a read on. So I think it's it's clever either way. That's what we say about things we don't understand, right? It's very clever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
but there's there's a couple of great scenes when we're in when we're introduced to the is it Native American shapeshifters uh, plot line potential? There's some great scenes when Dewey has to go to the very top of that enormous bridge yeah. to talk to the guys at the top there. Um, later on in the movie, he goes to what is kind of like a a, a dive bar, I guess, like a backroom bar slash uh, meeting place for this group of Native Americans in the heart of New York. And that's a pretty amazing and stark juxtaposition to all the like rubble and steel and just broken beams and stuff that we've seen leading up to that point so that's that kind of hinted at storyline slash outcome gives us loads of really great visuals and some awesome performances but before we get there we're 100 pursuing this this film noir experience of pretty brilliantly timed comedy woven in with incredibly bleak tired cop drama yeah at first i thought if it's going to be this slow like they can't sustain this for like what it's going to be like an hour and ten of the movie is going to be this surely they can't keep me interested but just on strength of performance the plot isn't you know it's not hurtling ahead like a bus is it it's just kind of chugging from ambiguous clue to ambiguous clue but somehow i stayed in it i stayed with it and i thought it was a really well sustained level of tension throughout that hour how did you feel in the whole cop segment well yeah no, i think i think that, that works especially well because it's pitched at a, a very specific level so one of the things that i love about this film is that but it always seems to pull the characters between two worlds. In the cop stuff, it's sort of um, oldie-timey cop intellect versus like high-tech new era policing with all this sort of machinery. Sure. You've got Neff, who is like a modern cop, who's, mm-hmm. who's all about psychology and building a profile and all that kind of stuff, versus Dewey's sheer intuition mm-hmm. and just like, something doesn't feel right here, so let's keep digging in this weird way. So I, I, th- I think that's what really drives it. And it's, it's all performance, really. It's all on the strength of, mm-hmm. of the performances that are happening. I mean, there's there's a few things in the cop stuff that pull me out of it. Like, I don't understand why they have sex. They have... It just sort of happens, right? It just... Yeah, there's no chemistry there. I mean, yeah. I think the film wants us to think that there's chemistry there, but there isn't. There isn't really... Uh, apart from in the very first office scene where he offers to drive her home... And she says, like, not tonight or next time or something. I thought, yeah, that could go somewhere. But then you're right. It's kind of dead from then on out. Yeah. It's it's kind of just professional friction. But it doesn't move into that, like, hot professional friction. It just stays like, he's too old for you. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's where it lands for me. Like, <laughs> Yeah, definitely that. And, like, yeah. like, they have some 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 witty repartee back and forth. Yeah. But, like, I, I mean, I guess... We're supposed to think that's flirting, but I didn't. I didn't read it as that. I didn't. I wasn't getting those. Mass- I, I thought he was more likely to fuck Whittington than he was to yeah. fuck Neff. Like, <laughs> to be honest. My favorite bit of their back and forth is when she says, "Why did you become a cop?" And he said, "I like to kill." Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> so much of that, just stone cold, dry as a bone delivery. Like, just killing it. I mean, that whole exchange is great in The Office, I think. It tells us so much about their characters. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why they bang. And to be honest, I didn't know who was banging when I first saw that happen. I was like, who the fuck is having sex right now? What's happening here? (laughs) Um, So maybe I wasn't as in it as I thought I was at that moment. But one thing that really smoked it for me throughout that whole sequence, I, I love Dewey Wilson as a cop because he doesn't do anything. Yeah. He just shows up in places... And picks up on like the tiniest little details and vibes and then just starts pulling things together. He doesn't have a notebook. 
He's not questioning people really. He's just kind of talking near them. <laughs> they just kind of get sucked in. He's not really paying attention to the tech stuff. He's not really paying attention to all the surveillance and the interviews. He's just kind of showing up places and seeing what happens. And I found that really endearing in a character. He doesn't have a huge amount of drive, which I thought was mm. really cool for a, a cop character. Because normally you've got this like, I got two days left to retirement. Or you've got like some stupid cliche or like he's a workaholic or whatever. He just kind of acts like he kind of has to be there. So he might as well solve the case, which I love. It's more like an L.A. noir cop in a New York setting. So I, I, I just, again, like he just dragged me through that whole hour just hanging on his every word. I thought it was great. And obviously they visit these great characters. They visit Tom Noonan, who is a wolf expert, I guess. Yeah. Is that safe to say? And who loves wolves, is really passionate about wolves. Obviously they visit Baldy, played by James Tolkien. We get a, a, a great rolling cast of really rich kind of bit characters doing their, you know, doing their scene really well and then moving on. And then we start to we start to enter the the horror aspects of the movie, which is where we get more and more attacks, and we get more POV. I like to think of it as like the POV shots from the Wolfen perspective are like somewhere between Geordie LaForge and Predator, yeah. which is great because we don't see either of that for like the best part of a decade after this movie, right? So we're, we're treated to some pretty great visuals. I mean, by by today's standards, not necessarily. I can't see a young audience today being wowed by it, but I thought it worked perfectly. Yeah, I, I wanted to wanted to ask you about that really, and see if you think if it worked, or if there was too much of it, or if there was anything about that that you would that you would change. I would go as far as to say maybe overused, just because the the thrill of it is more about the placement and the movement and the the fantastic like steady cam work. So I, I think I know we go back to Evil Dead a lot, but because those those like fast moving tracking mm. shots in the woods are used fairly infrequently, and they're used to be precursor to something hugely dramatic the tension is enormous like that's perfect execution in this it's a bit less so it's a bit more it's, it's used to be a bit creepier but the intensity of the visuals is so high that you, you're kind of led to believe something massive is about to happen and it doesn't always pay off so yeah. for me maybe slightly overused but that's because i was kind of over the effect after the first few uses i think the part that makes me think it might be a bit overused is when it when it happens on camera angles that wouldn't like that don't feel part of the the wolfen's eye view they don't feel wolfen yeah so like the the stuff where it's super low to the ground but then you get stuff where it's like people just turning around and it's like mm. you're not here you're yeah. not you're not five feet away from their face so right in the eye line yeah or like yeah up in impossible places like trees and stuff it just felt a little bit uh I, I totally get why they did it. I'm not criticizing the decision to do that. It just, for me, I, I the effect wore off a little bit. I didn't dislike yeah. it. I just feel like it would have been more effective to someone like me if it was a bit more sparingly used. Because you're so in the noir at that point as well. Yeah. You're so in the cop story. And then it's like, oh, fuck, it's Predator. Oh, no, it's not. Yeah, and I think you're right that you are expecting like big things to happen. And then like it happens at the beginning with the, with the driver or the security guard. And it's like, oh, God, something's going to happen. And then he gets chomped and his hand comes off. And then it's like, yeah. oh, it's going to happen again to the rich guy. And then he gets chomped and he's dead. Like mm-hmm. Everyone just gets chomped. Nothing else happens. Yeah. I, wrote, I tried to write a list of the deaths and I just, it just says chomped next to everybody's name. <laughs> chomped. Rich coked up lady, chomped, but this time with chomped. pearls. Workman, hoid off the Brooklyn Bridge. We liked that. Tom Noonan, yeah, love that. chomped on his moped. Gregory Hines, chomped while eating crisps. <laughs> you got them all. That's the, that's the list. <laughs> So it is the Brooklyn Bridge that they're on in most of these shots. Uh, so the the high wire uh, the, the the bit where 
He's up there with what's his name, Eddie, Edward James. Yeah, Eddie Holt, yeah. Edward James Holt's character. That's the yeah, Manhattan Bridge. Okay. And then later, it's the it's the Brooklyn Bridge. Okay, nice. Yeah, I, I, my bridge recognition is shaky. I'm glad you did your research there. But that again, like these quintessential New York landmarks. Obviously, we get the skyline. You know, we get what at the time was you know the, the complete like the bombed out Bronx. All playing into this this growing theme, this sort of steady... I love that we're not force-fed an environmentalist propaganda speech at any point in this movie. It's all just done visually, and it's done like an auteur does their thing. It, we're just shown great juxtaposition between the natural world and the slow decay of, of modern life. Like, cities, the you know, we get lots of sort of mirror shots of, like, how how the human world is dog eat dog and you know total survivalist, but how characters like Dewey have kind of lost touch with their their primal senses or their their appreciation of nature and things like that, which we we later see as a huge about face and a big character arc on his part in particular. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean about the film sort of forcing characters to exist between two worlds. Like there's mm. there is that there's like high class New York versus like the down and dirty, sure. like the Bronx. There's the high tech policing versus like the dog detective work. You've got mm-hmm. like the 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 race thing is always always sort of there whenever whenever Dewey and and um, any of the Native American characters, but mostly Eddie Holt. Yeah. Um, you've got like the spirit realm versus the corporeal reality, and Dewey's always stuck there right in the middle. Yeah, he sort of almost exists outside of everything because he's so weird. Yeah, that's his weirdness, right? He's like a spirit walker between worlds. He yeah. kind of traverses all these that's a great like rundown of all the sort of the dichotomies of the relationships in the in the movie for sure that there's a lot of like constant tension bouncing around and i think that feeds the momentum of the movie it's it's a slow grinding tension isn't it? it's not a dramatic yeah. clash of of ideologies it's like you know it's a way to kind of stoke the fire right up to a final climax and a big message at the end i think but yeah yeah, a masterful mid-section of this movie, I think. I just, I mean, I love the start. The start feels fresh. It feels crisp. It feels totally stylized. I, there's not a lot of movies. There's a lot of movies that look like this, but there's not a lot of movies that use this look in the way that this movie does and ties it together with such such a bizarre soundscape yeah. from start to finish. Well, there's one of, those, one of those horrible things in like film criticism where it's like New York was almost a character in its own right. There's a reason why people say stuff like that because it's like yeah. this film wouldn't work in Chicago or LA or I don't know maybe it would work in Detroit I don't I've seen RoboCop it kind of looks sort of similar it would be different but it would it could work yeah like you could get it has a similar well it has a grimier I mean, in this era I mean I'm not like typecasting Detroit but like <laughs> if if you want if you want that all these central clashes that you've just mentioned of of rich and and, and not rich and super palatial and completely like dilapidated New York. Yes, definitely. Yeah. You're right. Detroit doesn't have the same like doesn't have the same end to end quality to it in terms of how people perceive it in the movie world at this yeah. time. And I think that's that's another thing as well, is that obviously we'd we'd see a lot of New York in films around this time and prior to this film. And like you never see it look quite this shitty. Yeah, agreed. Like you, you would normally see I don't know like Forty Second Street and like the mm. the places that are that were pretty sketchy around this time mm. before before Ed Koch and Giuliani sorted all that shit out and ruined it. 
But it feels dangerous in this movie. It feels yeah. way more edgy to see. But I mean, maybe because we're looking at it with slightly meta eyes, but I'm looking at it and thinking, that must have been a fucking sketchy place to shoot. Like, yeah. that doesn't look like somewhere you could just pitch up and start filming. I bet there were some stories going on behind the camera. Yeah, yeah. Especially when they go to that church. Uh, I don't know exactly where they shot it. I would be amazed if it wasn't literally the Bronx. But <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it was. And you, you can tell, like, they're shooting super early in the morning <laughs> just to kind of get in and get out, which adds, you know, not to be too pretentious about it, but this movie feels really brave to me in a lot of ways. It doesn't feel like a movie that was like, we're going to make millions off this. It's pretty artsy in a lot of areas. And I don't mean that in, like, a disparaging way. I mean it in a really fucking brave way. Yeah. Like, here's your budget, here's your studio, and then you just go and make an art movie <laughs> about, like, cops and, you know, strange spirit wolves like i think it's amazing well i think that segues us quite neatly into talking about michael wadley mm. and his career yeah if you want like, to call it that <laughs> like I, I guess this film and woodstock and then being a, a climate activist full-time yeah that makes sense yeah and that's kind of all we know about the guy i bet you know a little bit more but like well he was he so he was in like scorsese orbit around the time that sort of Scorsese was starting his career, so right. they they worked together on like a couple of his a couple of Scorsese's early films, right? And then he made the Woodstock documentary, which won an Oscar. So my understanding is that he made Woodstock and was pretty famously uncompromising about things like the length. You know, it was a really long movie, like three hours plus documentary, and you know the spirit of Woodstock and was pretty uh, you know critically acclaimed because of the success of that and and how. Everybody seemed to like it, you know, from critics down to the public, despite its, you know, pretty obscene length. And then, you know, he he starts working on 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 this movie, basically based on a Whitley Strieber book. Do you say Strieber or Strieber? Definitely Strieber. Definitely Strieber. Yeah, I say Strieber. I heard people saying Strieber. So so based on a Whitley Strieber book that he, you know, said he didn't even like. He just liked the concept of. Yeah. As I understand it, that's his that's his LinkedIn. You know, he did that. He did this. And then he basically bought like a 30 grand house in in uh, LA, opened it up to whoever wanted to live there and started uh, being a full-time climate activist and also delivering a lot of lectures and a lot of, um, you know, kind of doing the circuit at universities and being kind of a pseudo-intellectual on the subject, which is a pretty interesting post-Wolfen career given yeah. that everybody else, you know, did a lot in movies and he kind of bailed. He had a big old falling out with suits and I guess... Either Hollywood said, you know, go fuck yourself, or he couldn't be bothered mm. with the hassle because he didn't need mm-hmm. to be bothered with the hassle. And yeah, went and lived a life that he probably is much happier in. He's probably way happier being a pretty right on climate activist and being proven right <laughs> way ahead of his time, <laughs> yeah. pretty much constantly, than, you know, making more movies like this for dickweeds like us to pick apart like it seems like a slightly more rewarding existence yeah but he he does an incredible job in this movie i think of of just pulling together incredibly diverse artistic influences a pretty pretty trashy but but deep deep beautiful trashy plot and obviously a love of film noir cop movies and also somehow shoveling all that into a package that was accepted by a major studio and was released with a budget, you know, it was promoted well and it maybe did, you know, technically, I guess, is a Hollywood flop, but it has an enormous cult following. Yeah. Uh, the, the more I read about it online, the more I see that whether or not you call it a werewolf movie, in terms of wolf movies, it's top five for, 
you know, thousands of, of fans of the genre. So he does something incredibly well here. I mean, what do you, what do you think are some of the some of the moves that he pulls that really make this movie buzz? It's it's hard to sort of really nail down those 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 things because it's so it's so accomplished for like mm. a, a guy that made one narrative feature and one mm. really fucking long documentary. Like <laughs> yeah. this, the, the the edit of this is really restrained. The mm. the shots are amazing. The, like like yeah. you said before, it, it feels brave. The mm. the stuff on the on the bridges is terrifying scary stuff in yeah. the movie i would say and wild like, shots up on top of that bridge yeah the altitude the the sort of lack of stability it's it's a, a crazy angles to pick i mean i bet they were limited in terms of space up there and probably time as well but like masterful scenes on that bridge amazing, amazing. and like you say the stuff in the church and like yeah. the way that he shoots like smashed up buildings and yeah. like rubble it it feels really, I don't know, there's, there's a real sort of tangible element to it. Yeah. Like, I've never been to New York, going in October. Probably won't look like that oh, anymore. Nice. But, um, <laughs> like, I feel like I was there. I feel like I, I, yeah. I, I understood the place. And I think that's also why you choose New York over, say, Detroit or anywhere else, is because it's it's a place that you think that you know because you've seen it in so much media. Sure. So when you see this new side of it or this... Or this, this, the, the reality of it within the confines of this film, mm. it, it does something different, makes you think differently about the place. Which it's yeah, they, they nail that here. He nails it, mm. and like the, the the choice to have the sort of the character eye, the the, the wolf and eye view, mm. like like we said, it it gets a bit. All right, come on now, get on with it. But but like those initial shots of that are really interesting, and like there are moments mm. when. Like it's it's just really sort of clever sound work and and, and visual work. Well, when it really works, it it's amazing. And the, the the moments when it doesn't work, that's probably when we're like, okay, this we've had enough of this now. True, it doesn't feel like it's just a visual effect and a kooky sound. It feels like it's a real effort to give you the perception yeah. that this creature is, is experiencing. It's not just like oh, we'll put a cool effect on it. It's like. We're going to put some care and attention into like where the heat signatures are and, and what noises they make at what point. Yeah, and it's that kind of attention to detail that sells it for me. And I think in, t- in terms of all the, the the shots of the the actual city and the landscapes, I think if anyone listening has ever gone out and tried to take quote unquote cool pictures of like rundown buildings and stuff, they always just come back looking like garbage. Yeah, they don't look artistic. It just looks like you've pointed your camera and taken a picture. So to do this is a huge accomplishment, I think, to make it look the way it looks. And there's bits where the whole skyline just looks like jagged teeth. Yeah, you know, that's surely not an accident. He's picking those locations to make us feel like we're in the mouth of a wolf. It's just incredibly poised. Like it's really poised filmmaking, which I know sounds a bit poncy, but you know his obsession with glass and mirrors and reflective surfaces you know juxtaposed against brick and wood and nat- more natural elements it's just really well woven together and i i just soak up all the visuals from start to finish and you don't get that in a lot of you know simple cop movies do you you no. get you get what you get you get a pretty beige palette with lots of blue every now and then and you just kind of you know what you're getting for the rest of the movie after three shots it's not the case in this movie it keeps you on your toes every time the camera turns or points somewhere else you think what the fuck's going to be next like keep it coming i'm in and that's that's part of the genius i think is that it could be boring it could be generic 
but it, it does it falls into none of those traps while still satisfying everything you want from a genre movie. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things as well is the fact that this massive counterculture guy wrote mm. wrote a movie about cops that isn't like cops are the worst thing in the world. They're like yeah. cops are just people that, that that exist. Yeah. I disagree. Scum. I mean obviously. ACAB, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But however, <laughs> give this guy give this guy his due. He doesn't let that he obviously felt and thought it, I guarantee it, but yeah. he doesn't let that bleed into his script. His script is great because it portrays real living, breathing humans, even though they're cops. Like it yeah. it, it just does that really well. We don't get we get the right kind of cliche in the right moment. We get the right kind of, you know, pretty tight fitting genre confines at the right moments in the movie to keep it keep it ticking along. But we don't get bored at all. Well, I don't get bored at all in this movie. No. It's amazing. I love it. I, I, I totally understand why you love it. And it's it, it speaks more to your your fandom beyond, you know, Italian splatter. This is you getting to enjoy a movie that's genuinely good, yeah. like from front to back. And it it almost made it hard for me to think of stuff to say about it on the podcast because I was like, I just fucking enjoyed this. Like, <laughs> you know, as a, as a huge fan of, of both horror and hard-boiled cop movies, this could have either gone really, really well or absolutely terribly for me. And thankfully, it, it did the former. Uh, just ticked a lot slash every box. It, it, I mean, the whole movie is kind of like, it explodes out the idea of gentrification because it's talking about gentrification of like boroughs and areas in New York, which are obviously like, like you said, just done inhumanly heavy-handedly and without any kind of thought or regard for what was already going on in those areas to begin with. Obviously, like we know that this was by design and not not like an organic evolution of a cityscape. This is like corrupt people doing horrible things to communities of of people and, and just displacing them essentially demonizing displacing infecting their communities with you know guns and drugs etc etc yeah and that is a perfect mirror to the native american you know undercurrent story in this movie it's it's cyclical it's it's showing that this will happen again and continues to happen unless the cycle is broken and that's what i think is happening in the final scene so the final scene in the movie dewey is confronted by several wolf and in the fantastic setting of the penthouse of the rich dead dude, whose name I've forgotten. Vanderveer. Uh, Vanderveer, that's it. And uh, it, it's a great setting for a final showdown. There's a lot of very clever lighting and uh, mirror work and angles and all kinds of stuff going on in this in this scene that you really have to watch. Like, it's not really worth me explaining it or you just got to see it. But, but the ultimate resolution here is that instead of shooting the wolf and, you know, using violence, he kind of attempts to communicate with them and you know lowers his gun empties of it of its shells and then you know instead of running away or attacking them he trashes the uh, architectural model of this new development somehow the wolfen perceive this as a you know a gesture uh, either of intent or of peace and they end up leaving and i think that is probably the the big statement piece of the movie isn't it it's like you break the cycle of violence by by disrupting um essentially like it's 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 speaking to protest i think it's saying you mm. know disrupt these plans stop these things from happening but also do so in peace and you may break the cycle of oppression and genocide that is yeah <laughs> rampaging through this you know great american culture in in that big climax obviously the thing that really stands out to me is earlier on in the film he's talking with eddie holt about the eyes of the hunter he says you have dead man's eyes. Yeah. The eyes of the dead. In that climactic scene, he gets the eyes of the hunter. He 
He opens his mind far enough that he can communicate with the wolf and he sees them in the same effect that they see yeah. us or him or whoever. I think that's what allows them to communicate on that sort of base next level. And I think it, I really like that. I really like the mm. idea because he's been set up as weird throughout the whole movie. We know that he's yeah. he's got, he, he sees things differently to other people and not in a, mm-hmm. everyone's just telling you that he's weird. Like it's, he's gen, genuinely written in a way that is interesting. Yeah. And has a has an interesting point of view. So yeah, so that 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 ending scene really makes sense to me. I mean it you could argue that it doesn't make sense as, as the climax to this story. Right. Once the credits roll, there's wolves everywhere on Wall Street, which <laughs> yeah, I mean is amazing. Leaping out of buildings. And, yeah, turning yeah. up in the back of people's cars. Yeah. Biting their heads off. But I don't need that resolved because of the strength of the scene. Yeah. I think that's the artistry. I'm not. I'm not sitting there after that scene thinking, "Yeah, but what about the wolves?" You know, I'm. I'm so in. Yeah. And and using the device of doing a POV shot from Dewey looking at the wolves with the same effect we've been seeing throughout the whole movie is uh, is magic. I, I thought it was going to be a bit cheesy, but it just smokes. It's a great yeah. shot. And it, it, what it made me think, looking back on the character. Which again, you know, we're banging on a lot about about Albert Finney's character here, but I think it warrants it. It made me think, right? I know what's happened here. We're told that he drank too much, and he, you know, he he dealt with some family issues and some personal problems by just like dulling the senses and drinking it. I think he had such a strong investigative eye and such an incredible intuition that he kind of couldn't handle it, and he had to booze. And boozing kind of dulled all that down, and he lost touch with who he was internally. And when he comes back into the movie at the start, when he's running, you know, that's when we see him kind of moving back towards his, his, um, his instincts and his, his ability to kind of perceive beyond what, what, you know, quote unquote normal folks can perceive. And it just gave me the full circle on the character, that final scene. First watch of the final scene, I thought smashing the, the model was maybe a bit on the nose, but then, but then I realized that I didn't actually realize what was happening in that moment. I had to watch it twice to fully get the scene. So I just, I just think it works. It glues the whole thing together. It brings us full circle. And it, it, it you know, kind of tees up a sequel. <laughs> you know, we could easily do a sequel. But yeah, love love that resolution. Totally happy with how the movie ends yeah. and what we're given as, as a huge payoff. The, the climax is, is the perfect climax. Mm. And like one of the great things that, that sort of follows you throughout this movie is I, I feel like the film is sort of closing in on you. Like the wolves are getting closer and closer as you sort of yeah. make your way through it. And then by the time you're at the, this climax, like the big action climax where there's, what, 10 wolves running around Wall Street, just sort of gleaming in and appearing out of nowhere and biting, yeah. biting guys' heads off, which I love. I, I love that the the Chekhov's severed head. That yeah. like Obviously, Greg Hines talks about how... how one in five dead guys can carry on chatting Linking or whatever. And, yeah, once yeah. once they've put, once they had the head chopped off, and then that yeah. happens. <laughs> yeah, like it's, it's just it's it's really dumb, but it like it's great. It is great. You get the action climax, and then you get like the emotional climax. Yeah, and then the wolves are getting closer and closer and closer until it's just Dewey one on wall, eye to yeah. eye with a wolf, and it and it just goes the right way. Oh, it's just really good, and like you never it really is. know. What's going to happen? I would say a lot of horror films of, of well, a lot of horror films of, of any era are quite predictable. Mm-hmm. They're safe. Even, even like 
some of the classics um, have a bit of a safe feeling to them. Yeah, like, sure. There's a there's a level of comfort there because it wants you to get comfortable, so it can take you, so it can make you uncomfortable. But this yeah. film has no interest in making you comfortable. <laughs> nope. <laughs> and that's the that's how well the I guess the antagonist, the wolf, and that's how well they're rendered. Yeah. Because they really feel like I mean, not just because they are literal wolves in the movie, but they they feel like totally unpredictable wild animals. They're you know, their motivation isn't clear. Yeah. Their patterns are not systematic. They're not just out to get the good guy. And that, cause that's boring. You know, they do way more with the idea of wolves as an antagonist, a righteous mm. antagonist in this movie. Um, the shots we get of the actual wolves, you know, uh, obviously this is of the time that they're, they're using real animals in movies. And obviously knowing, looking back how awful that is, you know, a lot of these animals were treated really poorly, but they are so awesome to look at in this movie. Yeah. They look fucking fantastic from start to finish. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I read that there was like basically in every scene with a wolf, there was a there was an army of guys with guns. So, so if a wolf looked at someone the wrong way, that wolf was that wolf was gone. If we're going to draw any positives out of that horrible situation and that pretty shameful era of of movie making, it's that. It just looks stunning. Yeah. I know it's shallow, but they look incredible. Uh, they look absolutely incredible. And we're, we're really led to to kind of love these wolves by Tom Noonan's character. Yeah. You know, when, when Ferguson is sitting alone watching all the, the projected footage of wolves being shot from helicopters and hunted and, you know, baby wolves being left to die and stuff. And he's crying. We're, we're given an entrance to, to empathy there. I think we're, we're sort of led to start empathizing with the wolves a little bit more yeah but that's t- that's taken away right because they kill him yeah yeah exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> but i love that that again speaks to the unpredictability and yeah. the, i guess what we as humans perceive as sort of the vicious nature of the natural world so a lot of love for how the how the wolves are portrayed no love for how they're handled uh, within the industry yeah but yeah just just really used to the max in terms of like their silhouettes putting them in mist having them stalk, you know, getting to see the expressions on their faces. That stuff was pretty valuable, especially leading up to that final scene. We've talked so much about how great this movie is and how awesome it looks and how well-directed it is and the pacing and the characters and everything. We barely mentioned the gore, which is normally your big bag, Jamie. What do you think of the gore in this movie? I mean, movie? The, the gore is there. Like, the gore is a yeah. why, I'm, why I love this film. Yeah. There, there are films that I love because of the gore. Sure. Uh, but they don't have... Well, anything that the, this film has. Mm. This film is what people that don't like horror films would refer to as a real movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, it is. If it wasn't for the gore, like you, you wouldn't, you'd barely know that this is this is um, even like tangentially related to the horror genre. Yeah, it'd be a thriller. It would yeah. be like a. I mean, there's a lot of thrillers that skirt horror. You know, Silence of the Lambs of course, is regarded yeah. by many as being like one of the greatest movies of all time. Nobody would call it a horror movie necessarily. It's not a million miles off that in terms of its, yeah. you know, its use of all the similar devices. The severed hand flying across the screen was a great setup for the gore in this movie for me because it was really dark and really fast and it wasn't excessive. It wasn't splatter gore. It wasn't bright red. It was just really well done. And I feel like that trend kind of persists throughout the movie. All the wolf wounds are pretty tasteful, like for want of a better word. Yeah. It's not like spewing guts and exploding chests. It's it's much more like... That woman's head falls off off camera. 
off camera we just get a thump sound it's used for you know comedic effect rather than rather than over the top gore and i think that was a, a pretty great choice especially for a werewolf movie where we expect throats being ripped out yeah. there's a great shot i can't remember who gets munched but there's a great shot where you get pov and it flies in on just like a normal clean human neck and it pulls out just as quick and the neck's gone and it's like a second oh that's like the the vagrant guy isn't it in the bronx it yeah. is yeah yeah but you don't see a bite you don't really hear a bite it's just like in gone out and that that kind of level of like speed and viciousness is what made me fear whatever was committing these attacks early on in the movie and it's later on what you kind of love about the wolves i think the mm. wolf and later on in the movie i have a question for you that's a bit tangential go on in the bar scene when dewey's all sort of roughed up and he goes in to see yeah. the, the native americans that are hanging out in the bar there's a tom waits song on yes why do you think they picked uh jitterbug boy <laughs> that that specific tom waits song I, I couldn't tell what Tom Waits song it was at the time and I knew that if I focused on it too much I was going to get totally sucked out of the scene and I'd regret it and I'd have to go back and watch it again so I'm glad you said that song. It could be... I, I don't put that song in this movie for a million bucks. Like, it, <laughs> I, I, I don't think it. I don't... I mean, I don't put Tom Waits in this movie. Maybe as an actor, that would be interesting. But Well, so that he was originally in that scene, he was originally in the bar playing piano. No way. They, they cut it, yeah. Interesting. Which is weird because why would he be playing in a Native American bar? And why would you cut it? Would be my big question. <laughs> that's the bit that's actually insane. I don't, I don't know why that song, I can't even speculate. It's a, it's a totally bizarre choice. My, my take on it would be not to be too insider baseball, but Tom Waits is obviously famously protective of his catalogue, um, won't touch anything advertising, won't touch anything that promotes a product, and has uh, pretty much, to my knowledge, final say in how all of his music's used in movies. So mm. it may be that that was his whimsical choice. Yeah, maybe. For for the audience, for the people listening, if, they, if you don't know Tom Waits, that song is about like a guy lying about his life. Mm. Um, maybe. Tall to, tales. Yeah, because I guess they're like fucking with him in that scene. But they're not lying to him. I don't know. It's just weird. Yeah. I mean, if, if they were going so deep as to try and tie a Tom Waits, or maybe the, the song might have inspired the scene, there could be some kind of uh, mm. you know story going on there. I would have thought that Tom Waits would have to have some say in in what song gets used in a movie, because especially a movie that he you know ostensibly performed in. Just because having read like every book ever written about Tom Waits, I can't see that being a thing that he would just be like, yeah, use whatever, yeah, <laughs> unless they were really good buds. Yeah, well, normally you'd you'd, you'd approach an artist and say, I wanted mm. to use this song in this scene, and like sometimes. Or more recently, it's because of the like, the juxtaposition of the of the of the, the music to what's happening on screen. But generally, it's meant to underline mm. or underpin some sort of subtext or some sort of element that's happening yeah. within the scene. And like all the choices that that are made in the direction mm. of this film are very very yeah deliberate. So it feels like there should be some reason that we're getting yeah. Jailbug Boy. Yeah, I, I think I you're right to get out. hooked on it though, because I did. I I made a mental note, cool Tom Waits song playing in that scene, but I did the whole time think slightly grindy. Like, if it's a if it's a a choice because of lyrical content, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have a really lyric driven piano vocal song playing during such a dialogue heavy scene with so much important exposition, because <laughs> your your brain is being split yeah. in half. Mine was anyway. However, that might be just another 
challenging aspect of the movie that it wants you it wants you to feel chattered at it wants you to feel like you've got to you've got to keep an eye on two narratives running at the exact same time and you've got to be aware of lots mm. of you know tom waits's voice is obviously all about texture it's, it's pure gravel but it's you know it's subtle melody in amongst chaos a lot of the time so maybe that's some kind of uh, i mean th- this guy loved woodstock you know this guy was obviously a hippie had a lot of time yeah. for iconoclastic artists and, and music that challenges the mainstream and maybe he was just kind of pulling a dick move and <laughs> giving us too much to think about all at once i don't know but i loved it i thought there's no way on earth these guys would be listening to tom waits but i love what they're doing here <laughs> like it's basically the only song in the movie as well like there's there's yeah, some score and then that's the only I bit can't of, think of like... any other music yeah oh there's yeah. a there's a scene where dewey is listening to some music in his office but it's it's not like a jam that jumps out at you it's it's something fairly ambient it's like some some like low-key mm. string stuff that's the only other song i can think of in the whole movie interesting we'll have to reach out to tom waits's people tom if you're listening we'd love to have you on the show yeah. tom there's no <laughs> if about it we know yeah, that you're tom. listening you've read every book about Sam <laughs> uh, such a great career and storied life the man tom waits yeah um, we'd like to see him in more movies please Give it up, man. Nobody's out there. We're alone. Oh no, there's somebody out there. I'm picking up all this crosstalk. So, Wolfen, do you have any final thoughts on the movie? Well, I, I, I had a couple of other lines that I really liked that I just wanted to flag because I thought they were me. really good. So, there's the scene when he's trying to get into is it the the, the morgue mm. or whatever. And the guy's like, yeah, I need your ID. Face. And he's like, my face is my face is like, the only difference between you and a dog is that you have a brain. No, the only difference between you and a guard dog is a brain. And he says, good, good, boy, good, yeah. good boy or whatever when he walks. <laughs> it's great. There's a great, there's a, there's a fantastic that. moment. I think it's when they're doing the stakeout with the guns, which, which I thought was weird. Whittington kind of gets pulled out of the morgue and taken out to be like a sharpshooter in a like sting operation, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> I odd. Loved it. But... He's drinking and he, he pulls a Mooney and he says, what did he say, like full black moon over the Bronx? He's shaking his ass out the window. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah. He's got some great lines. The best, the best comedy in the movie for sure. But I honestly, yeah. I was so in it that I didn't write down any dialogue. Normally, I'm, I'm like feverishly tapping out all the bits of dialogue that I really like. But this was like You've... whip crack throughout. And I just, I loved the dialogue from start to finish. Yeah. I think I think my favorite line in the entire movie, which makes you think that Dewey's going to die at yeah. some point in the film, is that first scene in the morgue when he's with Whittington. And he's like, hey, your hair's getting a bit long. Do you want to lie down and I'll cut it for you? And he's like, not yeah. it's my turn. Pretty great. And you think, well, A, that's just amazing noir yeah. dialogue. But B, that means you're going to die at some point in this movie. So you're waiting for him to die and he yeah. doesn't, which is great. I, I love I love that you can't tell if he's joking. Like, does he normally lay down in the morgue and have his hair cut by a mortician? Because <laughs> he delivers it so deadpan. You're like, maybe that's the thing they do. <laughs> I don't know. Very cool. Keeps you on edge. A lot of the dialogue is so dry that you just yeah. you don't know you don't know if you're coming or going. And I love that. I love when you feel like an outsider yeah. in dialogue because it feels so real. It feels like this is just people that you don't know talking. Rather than constantly clamoring to make you feel included and make you feel like one of the cool guys, I love feeling like I'm slightly pushed out by this group of super tight 
characters who are just living their lives yeah. and we happen to be watching. I think that's you know, one of the movie strengths. That I, be, I bet this script doesn't get as much love as it should in terms of both the dialogue mm. and the delivery. You know, it feels really well worked. It feels drafted. It feels honed. You know, by the time that we finish watching Wolfen, I am just about ready to slot it back on the shelf with movies that I would definitely watch again. Uh, I'm assuming you've watched it many times. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's got serious rewatch value for me. I think it's almost like do you know there's like those movies where you feel like you're hanging out with your old friends. Mm-hmm. I think there's a bunch of movies like that for me, and like most of them are like what Netflix would categorize as like late night comedies or whatever. Sure, like yeah. the Kids in the Hall movie or mm-hmm. I Love You Man or. Um, Tommy Boy. For me, it's stuff. Yeah, for me, it's like any uh, John Hughes movie, that kind of thing. Yeah. Or like Fast Times. You know, those are the what. Those are the kind of the comfort viewing. I feel included movies that I, I go to. Yeah, but like because of the, the the dialogue in this and the the way that the characters back and forth, it, it fits mm. really easily into like those. Oh, let's just go hang out with 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 Julian Whittington for a few hours. Like sure. How how bizarre for this to feel like a buddy cop movie and be so far from a buddy cop movie. <laughs> I I absolutely agree. I love that about it. And one of the one of the things that struck me in in kind of where I was placing this movie in my mind at the end of it, the reason I go back and watch Seven again is is not the it's not the plot. You know, it's a fantastic movie, but it's more like the details. It's yeah. more I want to rewatch that scene and look for that detail in the performance, or I want to. I want to follow the clues again, that kind of thing, because it's a great. It's a. It's not a mystery really, but it's a great cops following clues movie, and I always go back to good versions of that trope because when it's done well, it's it's, you know, it's not something that you can just experience singularly. I think it's something that you can revisit and learn more each time you watch it. You can you can gather more information, yeah. um, having having known how the plot resolves. So I put it as like a really satisfying rewatch. It would be a movie, it would be a seven day rental for me and I'd probably watch it two or three times. Like watch it once alone, scare the shit out of myself, watch it once with a couple of buddies and then maybe just watch it again in the background. It's that kind of movie. I think Seven's quite a good shout in there as well because there's there's quite a lot of that sort of awkward but quirky dialogue between Mm -hmm. Riggs and Myrtle or whatever they're called in Seven. (laughs) (laughs) Riggs and Myrtle, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Can't remember their names either. Great characters. Um, fuck, I can't remember at all. It's Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt. That's all we need to know. But yeah. Again, the the dimensions that were given to those characters kind of shallow. That we we know that Morgan Freeman is at the end of his rope. We get some great moments in that movie where he shows anger, and that feels like a big step up for his character. Yeah. Um, Brad Pitt is like a feisty, ambitious young cop. These characters feel more real. Yeah. You know, to me, to me, these are the kind of performances that that I can really, really get behind and, and, you know, wholeheartedly say I'm a fan of. That's the difference here is that, I mean, Brad Pitt isn't a bad actor, but he's a film star. He's he's a film star first and an actor second. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way around. Whereas everybody in this movie, like I said earlier, is an actor. Yeah. You could put any... If, if you had, like, some sort of acting competition, I don't know how mm. you would, you would uh, score that. <laughs> I love this idea. <laughs> but, like... I think I think we're in we're in echelons here. I think these are some of yeah. some of the best actors giving some of their best performances. I um, haven't seen Albert Finney do anything I like more than this. I don't think hmm. I'd have to revisit the catalogue a bit. But my my one thing I did make a note of that I thought was I don't know if it was just me picking up on it, but James Tolkien's scene as Baldy 
where he's doing the fiber analysis. Is he doing the fiber analysis? Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's the irony. He's bald. He's analyzing hair. Very funny again. Like great, you know, great comedy chops. He's <laughs> he's on screen for like 20 seconds, but he, he acts like he's showed up on set 10 minutes before. Someone's put a lab coat on him, told him what his role is. He's gone in and absolutely nailed it to the wall. He's just like chewing gum, marching around, delivering his lines perfectly with total authority. And then it feels like as soon as the camera pans away, he takes that coat off and goes and does another job. Yeah. Like he walks straight onto another set and just starts delivering lines. It feels like workhorse acting. Exactly like you said, it's it's craftsmanship. It's imperfect and it's beautiful and it's really hardworking actors. I think the whole movie is kind of held together by that graft. Like it really yeah. feels like people are grafting. Everyone's taking it really seriously. Nobody's like, I'm in a shitty, gory horror movie, B movie that might get me some more work if I'm lucky. I think everyone's taking the brief really seriously. And maybe that's directorial. Maybe it's the time. Maybe it's, it could be a million things. But for whatever reason, this cast is pulled together really well and they deliver not career defining performances necessarily but incredibly strong performances for a movie that you know probably was never really going to go anywhere you know yeah we're coming off the back of the 70s here and that was a a decade where proper auteurs were making horror films with Mm. big name actors Mm. and they were doing really well you've got films like the exorcist and don't look now and the changeling and rosemary's baby and all all these sort of big big name horror films like the the absolute classic horror film canon now outside of the, the franchise names. Sure. They, they all sort of came in the in the 70s, sort of ramping up towards the end of the 70s. So it's no it's no surprise that like you've got this level of actors interested in doing and taking seriously a role like this or a film like this because it's been the norm for so long. In the 60s, horror films were Vincent Price looking into the camera and saying Ooh, it's a skeleton or whatever. Like, <laughs> do you know Great what I mean? Price. Yeah, yeah, like, for sure. Hammy, uh, yeah. predictable, yeah. And like, even the the earnest horror films in the sixties were mm-hmm. were were still very goofy because they were made yeah. for a a very young audience. Whereas, like, sure, as we moved into the seventies and and into the eighties, into the early eighties, before all the franchises hit from like 1985 yeah all the franchises became franchises in 1985 mm. you've just got this real like these are films for adults yeah that and that, i think that's the uh the, the beauty of it and like a kid could watch it and be like oh there's a there's a, there's a gore and then i went to sleep for an hour and then there was wolves <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a great kid read of this movie that should have been the whole podcast <laughs> But that that hour is the is the meat. That hour that is, is the best yeah. bit. It is, yeah, for sure. You don't get the ending without the middle, for sure. Yeah. The middle is where the the graft goes in in this movie. Oh, I totally agree. Like it, you, you have to take into account that context to understand why these people are trying so hard yeah. in this movie. And I love that about it. It it really feels like a a genuine piece of filmmaking. It doesn't feel like a cash in. It doesn't feel like a quick studio pick knocked out doesn't feel like we need to meet our quota of wolf movies because they'd way overdone it that year as you said <laughs> at the top in terms of wolf movies and it, it just feels like it's it's right place right time for this cast you know a little moment in, yeah. in movie history and and everyone brings their a game nobody hogs the spotlight nobody goes over the top everyone's in check in line and fucking doing their thing and and yeah 
I, I love that about this movie. It's it's a, a real ensemble, but not in the like over the top dramatic way that we we view ensembles nowadays. Cracking stuff. What what should I watch with Albert Finney in it? If I loved this movie, if I'm a listener who really enjoyed this but doesn't really know where to go in the Finney oeuvre, where would I? Where you want to point me? Well, that's a great question. Tom Jones is the character that he is known for. Mm-hmm. When I wrote his obituary for Salford Online, mm-hmm. it was Salford star of Tom Jones dies at whatever age he was when he died. No way, you wrote his obituary. Only for the Salford-based web publication that I was working for at the time. That's great. Yeah, big thanks to Albert Finney for dying while I worked there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Made your career. <laughs> A big byline for Jamie C. But yeah, that one, uh, The Duelists in the 70s, big fan of that. I rate his Poirot. He was a, he was a good Poirot. Me too. Me too. Um, and obviously Scrooge. His, yeah. That that take that musical take on Scrooge, amazing. I yeah, love it. Scrooge is wild. I can't, I, I find it really hard to love a Scrooge more than Michael Caine in, in Muppets, uh, <laughs> Muppet Christmas Carol. But, I'd, you know, in, in terms of like serious Scrooges, yeah, Finney, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so... Imagine there's a wolf, a 1981 wolf Mexican standoff. Right. Who's coming out on top? Of all the wolves. Of, of, of the 1981 wolves. This is my fave. Nice. To be completely honest, I was never a huge American Werewolf in London fan. It just didn't, didn't do a lot for over. me. over. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to rewatching it with you in mind. I find that when I rewatch these horror movies that I didn't love when I first saw them, but I think about you. <laughs> I just enjoy them like ten times more. But but this does way more for me. I love I love werewolves in 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 classic horror. I love Lon Chaney. I love um, you know Curse of the Werewolf. I, I love a lot of classic werewolf depictions because I know what I'm getting. It's comfort viewing. American Werewolf in London. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. But I would almost go as far as say I love this movie. It, it takes it to a place that. That resonates a lot more with me as a fan of mm. movies, not just of horror movies. You know, on my on my shelf to my left here, I've got eight to fourteen. Well, like two two shelves worth of books on Native American culture. Uh, one of them is just about wolves in Native American culture. So, so that's something that I I read a lot about as a fan. And you should and have maybe dipped into it of. to do some research for this. Some quotes, yeah. Maybe I should have. <laughs> I should dig into Osceola. Yeah, but loads of loads of great stuff that I've read. You know, in my in my short life on on that kind of stuff. Um, but also as a fan of of this type of you know cop movie and this type of just pulling all these elements together and and crushing them into this pretty weirdly psychological claustrophobic mystery type movie just ticks borderline every single box i've got that you can imagine you know within this this sphere so i would say it's um it's one of my favorite if we're going to call it a werewolf movie it's one of my favorite werewolf movies i'd say definitely in the battle of the the wolves of this year of 1981 this comes out on top for me and it's a movie that i will definitely return to and, and really enjoy and will show other people definitely nice. what about you where are you placing it in the, in the in the wolf pack i mean it's 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 a tricky question isn't it and that's why i asked you and not yeah gave my own opinion so <laughs> but it's it's opinion it's opinion based you know it's it's yeah it's what well, you like isn't it i mean i love all three of these movies mm-hmm there is something about Wolfen that feels very different to The Howling and American Wolf in London. Mm. And I think 
American Werewolf in London and The Howling to a, to a, to a lesser extent feel yeah. young and vibrant. They feel like they're made by like the the sort of filmmaker that we've that we now come to expect, like that sort of hungry, super super knowledgeable and super uh, reverent filmmaker, like your your Joe Dante's, your I mean your Spielberg's, but your 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 people like Joe Dante who made The Howling. Mm-hmm. And uh, Landis, John Landis. I don't know. They feel like they're they're much quirkier in in the way that they're making films, and they're making films mm. that feel a lot more like, "Hey, we're cool and we're young." Mm-hmm. Check out our effects. Look yeah. at our costumes. Yeah. Um, for the people listening, I did like the to 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 highlight cool and young. I did the Steve Martin wild and crazy guys hand gesture. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> wild and crazy guys. <laughs> You know, cool and young, like Steve Martin. Like Steve Martin and Martin Short. <laughs> You're right. That's that's what those movies feel, look, and sound like to me. Is yeah. they're kind of they're more showy. And like again, I can't articulate it any better. But Wolfen feels like a proper movie, like a real mm. a real film. Yeah. You don't feel like anyone's having fun. People are there to work. Yeah, and they're, and they're there to sure. get the job done, and that's what you were talking about before in that graft. Whereas, mm. like, you feel like, "Hey, we're having a fun time on set, and we just happen to get a movie out of it." And granted, it's one of the best werewolf movies ever made, but it's not Wolf, mm. is it? Okay, look at it this way: I think we can we can trim the trim the fat off this question. If if there was a a movie triple feature in your town tonight, mm. and all three of these eighty one movies were happening at the same time, you can only get a ticket and go see one. Which one are you going to? I'm going to the to the person who's organised its office and <laughs> trying to understand why he's done this. <laughs> Just to fuck with you. It's me. You open the office door and it's me. Hello, Jamie. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, I watched Wolfen like last week, so I'm not going to watch Wolfen. Um, <laughs> Pretend the podcast doesn't exist. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a tricky one because I would probably go and watch American Werewolf in London because... Watching that with a crowd, it would be a very different yeah. experience to watching this with a crowd. The cinematic experience, yeah. I'd go to this because there'd be no one in there. <laughs> It'd just be me, <laughs> which is how I like it. That's why you scheduled them at the same time, wasn't it? <laughs> exactly. It's a private screening, dude. I don't even need to, even need to think about it. This, a large salted popcorn, I'm away. Leave me alone. You go salted. Oh, every time. Every time. I'm a mixed guy myself. Mixed. Ooh. I mean, that's... A very specific kind of heresy, but I like it. And, you know, if I'm feeling particularly nihilistic that day, yeah. I might get the full Odeon nachos. Oof, which that's is wild. Absolute horrible decadence. Like, there's, there's, yep. there's so much at play there. You hate everybody else in the cinema. You want them to suffer. You hate yourself more than anything. Absolutely. You don't care. You hate about... Mexico. You hate nachos. <laughs> yeah. You hate the clothes that you're wearing. <laughs> yeah, you do. You also want to buy into the dumbest, most ridiculous idea that cinema's ever had. And that's to tell everyone to be really quiet and then give them nachos. <laughs> Fucking loudest food on earth. You might as well bring out a fajita platter while you're at it. Like it's ridiculous. And you, and you also hate money because you're spending yeah. fourteen quid on crisps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So 
Any final Wolfen thoughts from you, Mr. Russo? Just thank you for putting this movie in front of me, and I'm really glad... Does it make up for Cannibal Holocaust? I'm not glad it's not Cannibal Holocaust, because I I have a a very special place in the deepest, darkest recess of my soul where I secretly quite enjoy Cannibal Holocaust, but... I, I love Wolfen because it's 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 exactly what you said not to say earlier. It's kind of a real movie. Like it's it's a fully accomplished piece of filmmaking with fantastic performances in it and a really interesting plot to me. I really find the plot interesting. I would be tempted to read the Whitley Strieber book off the back of seeing this movie. Uh, I read it's Communion. Good. You've read you read it. Yeah. Oh, good. If it gets your vote of confidence, I'll try it because I thought Communion was borderline unreadable. This is. I think this is this might be his first novel. Right, and it just it, he's he's really hungry, and it, the writing's good. The characters are pretty different, mm-hmm. so I think you could read it and not feel like that you're just watching or you're just you're just reading the same thing that you just watched. Mm. Well, I mean, the the movie made me want to read the book, and the book happens to be written by a guy whose writing I don't love, so that that speaks to the strength of the movie, I think. But it, it really lit my imagination up. That was that was what really got me with this movie. It, it had me guessing at times, even though, you know, how many movies have you guessing when they're called Wolf? They have a picture of a wolf on the front and a full moon, and the opening scene is a wolf attacking a man. <laughs> like, you know, it still had me thinking and, and kept me on my toes. So it does so much so well that it's it's kind of hard to summarize. But what I would say is that, you know, in, in what was becoming at the time and, and still is now a pretty tired genre you know the werewolf genre i think it does something really brave and really new and it does it really well so i would give this you know five huge glinting claws in the moonlight out of five uh, i thought nice. it was a, a fantastic watch and i'm grateful to have watched it thanks for putting it in front of me i wonder if like it's a sort of blessing and a curse that this came, this film came out in 1981 mm. because people assumed it was a werewolf movie and, and maybe didn't give it the attention that it deserves mm-hmm. when if they'd have watched it after having watched American Werewolf and The Howling, they'd have been like, oh shit, this is actually giving me something different and like nourishing and interesting where they weren't necessarily getting that or getting something different from uh, from those other two movies. Well, nowadays think- they probably would have dust till dawned it, wouldn't they? They probably would have put it out as a cop movie and then people watching the cop movie would have found out it's a werewolf movie. I don't Has know anyone ever dust, dust or dawned a movie that isn't dust or dawn? Huge question. Uh, I don't think you. I don't think you really can post Dust Till Dawn. Uh, mm. I don't think you can now, given how much you have to give away about a movie just to get someone to even fucking consider watching it. But no, yeah, none spring to mind. I, I think of like slightly ambiguous horror titles where you don't really know what's going to happen, but you're kind of sold on the idea, like District Nine, maybe, or like Super A, mm. where the antagonist is semi-ambiguous but you know it's going to be a horror movie i don't know i I can't think of any that spring to mind no i was pretty fucking unique in that respect this this film is perfect for werewolf fatigue Mm. because you're werewolf fatigue i almost let that phrase pass me by werewolf fatigue bring it on (laughs) well just because it's like you you're given all these sort of werewolfy tropes interspersed with like good acting and real drama and Mm. witty repartee as i've said and then you get to that moment when it's like oh shit here's the big change scene and it's just a guy hobbling about on all fours in the in the nude yeah oh it's just you just just go to a completely different place after that and it's just amazing it's so true yeah you're 100 percent right and that's what 
captures my imagination. It's not just the idea of wolves in New York. It's this this idea of like a, a Native American spirituality type subplot mixed in with an environmental perspective, mixed in with a bit of a take on class and and mm. you know, wealth corrupting everything. Uh, it, it does it does so much with so little, and, and that I'm always going to respect and love in a movie. But it it does it does so in a way that made me walk away and think a lot more about the themes and made me kind of explore the visuals with with a little bit more um, sort of cinematic seriousness than a lot of werewolf movies maybe do because they're satisfying. You know, I love mist and fog. I'm I'm leaving a werewolf movie satisfied with how much fog I've seen. I'm leaving this movie, you know, eminently more satisfied with so many other things. Um, and that's what that's what makes it a bit of a, a bit of a surprise smash hit for me. Like you say, with the Native American plot, there, there's there's a there's a there's a line in a, a documentary on Shudder, might have been Cursed Films, Cursed Pictures, whatever that documentary mm. series was called, and they're talking about the trope of like, um, it's built on an on a Indian burial ground, mm-hmm. and the guy's like, if if we're honest with ourselves, it's all Indian burial ground. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so absolutely. like. Yeah, it just makes you think of that and how like you don't think of New York as a place where there was there were Native American tribes, but like they were everywhere. They were the indigenous people, and they were decimated by you know me and you, the, yeah, the British. Uh, but yeah, coast to coast, and that again, that's what that's what you lose sight of if you limit your perception of America to these cityscapes and these these kind of. Uh, images of these places that we're fed as 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 the modern versions of them you know it's a pretty simplistic way to view a, a fucking enormous landmass to just perceive new york as new york now but also to not to not do flashbacks i think it was really brave and really cool in this movie to not to not just default to that as a device and mm. just be like oh here we are in the past you know i thought that was really cool and not to have some crusty old you know, some old timer doing some exposition, like to to keep it fresh and new and, and avoid those traps and just keep telling us the same story in new ways, I think was a very, very cool thing to do. Yeah, geographically exciting, historically relevant, it's finger on the pulse in terms of themes. Yeah. Kind of kind of timeless. The performances make it pretty timeless. Great costume. We didn't talk about the costume, some some really clever understated costume choices mm. beautiful set pieces a bit of a, a bit of a podcast smash hit this one it will go won't just go on the horror shelf this will go on the the great movie shelf i think for me well i'm glad that you liked it did you like it is that is that what's <laughs> is that what you're picking up on <laughs> yeah i liked it <laughs> it's just it's just great i would give it i'm in the nines Oof. somewhere in the nines nice the nine points yeah I mean, in the nines is is pretty huge, um, you know. Especially uh, again, not compared to compared. Am I Irish? Not compared to any of the movies that we've reviewed so far. But there haven't been many nines. No, and also my numeral numeral system is nonsense. It's just whatever number. Yeah, it's, it's not nine today. <laughs> nine yeah. out of what? It could be nine out of a thousand. Yeah, but it's just a really fucking good film. My advice would be. Check out Wolfen. And thanks, Wolfen, for being Wolfen. Yeah. Thank you, Michael Wadley, for making this then fucking off, I guess. Yeah, thanks, dude. Blaze a trail. Sorry about the environment. Yeah, sorry you were right all along. 
and <laughs> nobody listened then and nobody's listening now. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Final Transmission. I've been Sam Riso. Signing off. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> As we melt into <laughs> the toxic waste. Yes. Drowning in the toxic waste. As always, Sam and Jamie, thanks for coming. Thank you.